if you're a hippie vegan, it works. So <laughs> I'm gonna put anything with the letter O on my face. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast, the weekly podcast dedicated to conversations on faith and culture. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, before we get into our topic, which our topic this week is eschatology or end times or the end of the world or whatever term you use to describe the end of all things. And for our segment this week, we'll be bringing back uh, a segment from our 16th episode called Sort of Scat- Scategories. So that should be interesting. Um, and also, before we kind of get into our conversation, I just want to note real quick that we're doing something a little bit new. Uh, we will always offer this for free, but uh, it does cost us to host and all that kind of stuff. So we've implemented an affiliate program with Amazon. So anytime we mention a book, which we've done f- throughout the show, in our show notes, we put a link to it in case you're interested and you want to read more on a subject that we talk about. If you click on the link in our show notes, it takes you to Amazon. And if you purchase that book, then we get a small percentage to kind of help cover some of the costs. So if we ever mention a book that's interesting to you, I can guarantee you it's going to be in the show notes. And you can check that at the show. Like if we mention a book today, you'd check that at irenicast.com slash 45 or any of our past episodes also have those links as well. And if you're listening on your phone, depending upon your, your podcasting app, you can actually just click the link from the app as you're listening. With that out of the way, let's get into our conversation. Let's discuss the end of the world. Does anyone have any dates or predictions? I'm going to say March 7th, 2020. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have long days. I am gonna, I'm gonna do what most of the where everybody has failed. I'm gonna set a date after I die. That way, I can make money and have followers and not disappoint anybody. Oh, great! Is that what we're we're doing? Is starting as a cult? This, <laughs> yeah, that's actually part of the conversation that that we're gonna have. There are a whole bunch of people who have set the end of the world sorts of dates, even though. Um, oh yeah. Even though, kind of ironically, it says not to do that in the New Testament, both Jesus says that in Matthew and also in Acts, Christians just can't help themselves and have, for hundreds of years, been setting all kinds of dates. And surprise, none of them have so far been true, to my knowledge. Well, most of them correspond with election years, right? If a person doesn't win, then it's the end of the world. Although this time, if if Trump wins, then I wouldn't mind if that prediction was correct and that it was the end of the world and we could just end this whole thing right now. Look at you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but my prediction is the year 3377. <laughs> why? <Perfect. laughs> the reason why is because God told me last night in a dream. Oh, yeah. Really? Is that what happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It happens all the time. Oh, my God. That's You have an amazing connection there. Like, I knew you were going to say that just now. God told me. Dude, Jeff is creeping me out, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know you had extra sensory perception or what is it called? Telepathy? Well, when you can predict the future, is there a word for it? Yeah, it's called um, premonition. It's called being a man of God. Premonition. Or, <laughs> so there, <laughs> there are all kinds of ways we can go in this conversation. I think we're going to talk about kind of the history of thought on this subject at some point but before we do stuff like that you're saying this all tongue-in-cheek but have you ever had somebody you know talk about the end of the world or like have you been in a church situation where that was a big part of your faith oh yeah for yourself it was it was for us growing up a huge part of church and um you know begging jesus to come back like during worship services like 
um, a lot of kind of Zionistic theology, like we have to support the rebuilding Zionistic of the Zionistic as the in Zion, temple. the mountain well, in Israel. Right, I was just about to explain yeah. it. Um, so we can, uh, we should support the rebuilding of the temple in Israel so that Jesus will come back and it will usher in the apocalypse. Like, like we ha- so we have to support Israel. Um, so it has a lot of political ramifications. Um, a lot of like, you know, like who do we vote for people who support, you know, Christian theology because Jesus is coming back and the world's going to be a really dark place and the antichrist is going to take over all the left behind stuff. You know, um, we don't have to really care about what happens to the earth because it's all going to burn, you know, that kind of like very real. Like, not so just, you just, you just threw that out. You just threw out the words left behind, but some people might not know what that is. You just referenced one of the most successful book, like, uh, not trilogies. I think there's like 10 books or something like that that has ever existed. It was like top of the charts in the 90s for the bestseller lists. And basically, that's like a whole event in and of itself is there's this like fiction that's based on theology that talks about the end of the world. And people got really caught up in it. Get it caught up. <laughs> rapture. Yeah. The idea <laughs> being that, you know, someday the rapture is going to happen and all these events will happen in the world and you can see it coming. And so there's a pretty successful business based off of that. Oh yeah. I had the distinct pleasure of working in a Bible bookstore during Y2K oh, yeah. and it was, ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Y2K. That's oh, awesome. Oh man. Y2, that was like the height, right? Cause yeah. Y2K was going to end the world. That was the, for those... the second millennium since Jesus. So that's right. For those yeah. of you youngins that don't know what, uh, what Y2K is, is at the turn of the, what is it, century? Is millennium. Right millennium yeah, and century. Yeah, the turn of the thousand years, yeah, and the century. Basically, I don't know, computer programmers didn't realize that we would reach that, and there was something with the numbers. Like when the date turned over, everyone would think it was 1900 again, and they would crash all the computers in the world, and all planes the would fall would out of the sky, and mm-hmm. it would usher in the tribulation, and Jesus would come. And there were literally like hundreds of books written on this being like the end or ushering in the end and all that kind of stuff. And I remember we had a New Year's Day sale in the Christian bookstore on January 1st, 2000, and all these books, stacks and stacks of books for like 50 cents and 25 cents and a dollar <laughs> because they're all they're all predicting the end of the world and the crash of Y2K and you know nothing happened. Is and that when like still a, buying them, which I don't understand why. Is that like when a Super Bowl team loses and they have like all of this merch that they've already created that says like Super Bowl winners, but they're not actually the winners, and so it just gets offloaded to some charity. Somewhere. Exactly, but no one's you know selling those on eBay for. <laughs> I'd buy them. I would. You. You would. You would. <laughs> I would. What What I don't understand is how like a comp- I don't understand how a computer glitch that, yeah, might crash computers and, like, might cause, like, apocalyptic-like situations, like, you know, where you can't buy groceries and things like that. Why that automatically translates to, like, biblical prophecy. You know what I mean? It's kind of a weird, I mean, or people's interpretation of biblical prophecy, we could say. It's kind of a weird thing to jump to. Mm -hmm. That's a great thing to point out, is that... A lot of times these movements that we see as like specifically Christian movements throughout history that, you know, the end is happening right now or we're looking forward to the millennium and it's going to be coming any moment. They actually coincide with a general like feeling of society and and in the world, uh, whether it's church or not, even, you know, secularist hopes and stuff like that, is that there is like this sense that something's about to happen. And so Christian Christianity just has a certain flavor of that. That actually happens all throughout history. You know, like there there are people who were 
looking for the turn of Y2K to be this global event, even if they were Christians or not. But just because you happen to be Christian, you just put that flavor on it in some ways. It's just, it's like you have a little jar of spice, like a little Christian flavor that you like sprinkle. <laughs> there are, I mean, you know, yeah. So far off so some, maybe is yeah, a metaphor. Some, some of that hope is very intrinsic to the Christian message. So it's not like it's just, you know, something else, but it tends to happen kind of at the same time as a general feeling. So that that's why you get that. That's why the computer glitch looks like the coming of Jesus sort of yeah. thing. And it's important to note, like this, all these you know, predictions or ideas, they're somewhat rooted in scripture. When we talk about like, well, where in the Bible does it say this? It's almost always coming from Revelation or small snippets of Matthew or Daniel and what we would call apocalyptic literature. So certain specific genre within scripture that is full of symbols and cryptic and people have, you know, I think in Revelation it talks about like these hornets and I've heard people talk about how they're describing helicopters. You know what I mean? Like they impose certain things on these symbols and it, in a lot of ways that kind of, I don't know, misinterpret things. Yeah. And apocalypse is like an unveiling or a, or a revealing. That's, that's what, you said apocalyptic. That's actually the word, I think, for this whole discussion that we have to center on is that you said it was a genre that was very popular when the Bible was written, but we don't really have that genre around anymore. And it's pretty important to remember that like from 200 BC to about 100 AD, there was this like set of writings. There's a whole bunch that are outside the Bible. There are a few that Jeff pointed out. Daniel has some, or Daniel is apocalyptic. Revelation is apocalyptic. You find a little bit in Isaiah and Zechariah, and then a little bit in the Gospels. That, but that's pretty much it. And it is like a genre that says there's this like revealing of what's happening in the world, and there's this cosmic battle that is happening between God and the forces of evil, and like human governments and the way that the world is set up is on the side of evil, that they're not actually good for the people. And there is a time coming when God will assert control once again and show that God has always been in control and will replace these evil earthly kingdoms with justice and um, mercy and all sorts of things. So that's like the apocalyptic vision. And that's, that's when the New Testament was written was the time when those things were popular. So that's why you see it in the New Testament and, uh, it's actually pretty common for people to see Jesus as a failed apocalypticist. I don't know if you've heard this, but like some people see Jesus as someone who came preaching that, you know, the the end of things is near, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is something that Jesus said. And some people see him as having a message that didn't come about. And so he was crucified and his whole thing that he had preached falls apart. Obviously Christians like me and some others don't necessarily agree with that view of it, but for some people, that's how just they a few to. others, just a few other Christians. <laughs> yeah, most Christians wouldn't agree with that, but there are some people who study Christianity and study the Bible, and that's their takeaway. It's interesting to me too that the misunderstanding of apocalyptic literature. Um, sorry, if we can backtrack just a sec, like really does. Um, it, I, I wish people would really study what this was in historical context, this genre in particular, because we get a lot of weird spinoff theologies because it's misunderstood. For example, theologies around Satan. A lot of people take like, for example, Ezekiel 28, which is talk about the King of Tyre and how, you know, 
Um, your heart became proud. I threw you upon the earth by your many sins. People, people equate this. We've developed this like long, um, elaborate mythos around Satan, like being the archangel that God cast out of heaven because he rose up in rebellion against God. But that's actually talking about a real king on earth. And it's written in this sort of cosmic way. So people think it's talking actually about an angel, not this king, you know, so it's, it's complicated because it's a lot of times apocalyptic literature um, replaces past for future or future for past. So it will say something has happened that is going to happen or something's going to happen that has happened already. They're actually coding um, language about, for example, like the book of Revelation codes language about Roman Caesars and Roman rulers in ways that only Christ followers of that time would be able to understand. So it's kind of like written in in cryptic code. That is that is a possibility. There are a lot of people that say Rome, the book of Revelation has been like written in such a way that people wouldn't be able to interpret it and see that it's like anti-empire and anti-Rome. It is undeniably anti-Roman. Like that's not a question. But some people see Romans as act or Revelation as like an obvious anti-Roman like piece of literature. So it's it's written, and somebody from Rome reading it would realize like, okay, we we know what these people are talking about because it's an oppressed people, and they're writing about like um, certain animals and images and things that some people have you know put to the future. But it's definitely written about things that are happening at the time. So if if Christians look at Revelation and they want to say that this is about the future, they have to admit, though, that it is about both the times that it is written and possibly about the future because it is obviously written about Rome. There's a good book. That's called Double Fulfillment, right? Yeah, Double Fulfillment. You see those things in like Isaiah about, you know, a king's going to come and then we interpret it as being Jesus. So that, that does happen, I guess, for Christians in the Hebrew Bible coming into the New Testament. So some people say that could happen, you know, into the future from the New Testament. But as far as reading Revelation as a protest, there's a really good book. It's called Can I Get a Witness by Brian K. Blount. It is reading Revelation through African-American culture and reading Revelation as if if it were a protest rap. And I have to say, reading through that, this like small book, it really helps you step out of, at least me, because... Um, I'm not African American and I don't really listen to rap, but I stepped out of my like cultural setting to read Revelation with different eyes. And it really helped me see that this genre, this apocalyptic genre is different than anything I've ever come across. I mean, dissecting it as if it were a science to tell us like, and this is something we're going to get into. Some Christians dissect apocalyptic as if it was telling us exactly the steps of what's going to happen in history. And it's a prophecy, almost a science, like this is going to happen. And then you'll see this and this, and it's really intricate interpretations of it to look at it. That way is to, in my opinion, sin against the genre itself. I mean, if I had written to for instance, let's say love literature has completely fallen out of everyday life of the milieu of, of humanity 2000 years from now. And I had written to my wife that like my heart falls out of my chest for you. And someone later like took that and looked at it like scientifically and dissected it and said, (laughs) yo, Oh my gosh, his heart, his, his chest is opening up. That's, that's not exactly what's happening, but it's, that's like a good analogy for what happens when we treat apocalyptic as if it was anything else. 
So yeah, and we do that. I mean, that's that, that's something we've talked about before in our Bible episode is that idea of knowing the genre and interpreting as such. So there, there's also a good book, Plowshares and Pruning Hooks, which kind of gives you a framework with the appropriate way to approach not just apocalyptic literature, but also poetry within scripture and recognizing you can't put a literal interpretation on something that is not literal. Yeah, that's a great book about prophecy. And that was one of my first forays into that. You recommended that that book to me once, and it definitely <laughs> helped me in my coming of age in thinking about this stuff. Um, can I tell a brief story of myself about this? I um, was kind of got into a community of people who is studying what is called in some evangelical circles as preterism. And it's basically people who reject double fulfillment. And even in, it's interesting because I haven't heard in, in academic theology, I've not heard that word tossed around very often um, in more liberal circles. Preterist just means like of the past basically. And so there's, there's actually a lot of like material and a couple of famous um, pastors who, who do talk about this on a regular basis that like this prof, these prophecies have been fulfilled. Like, bef- you know, a, a lot a lot of revelation is pointing to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and it's it's actually when you study the the bible the like early jewish history right after the bible was written or some people say during um but right after like within the first hundred years of jesus um it, the bible makes way more sense like way 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 more sense so um that's that's something maybe some of us could look into but for me that was really formative because i some of my friends were studying this stuff and actually one of my friends was a, a youth pastor and he started studying this stuff by reading the Bible commentaries at the church in the church library and just kind of piecing this together because he was really interested in prophecy. And so he started looking at this. Oh, well, you know, that prophecy that, you know, people talk about the end of the world or the rapture today. Wow. That actually has like really historical grounding. Oh, interesting. So, um, like, for example, like when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies on all sides, like a lot of th- people, I think that's in Matthew 19 or 25, Jesus says, a lot of people talk about that, you know, today, like with, you know, the Middle East crisis in our current day. But really, that makes a lot of sense with the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Anyway, um, and, and in this later person re- and late, later revolts, too. I mean, like, and later. Yeah. yeah. So so early Jewish history is really important to understanding the Bible. Really? Like, you re- you really almost can't understand it. It's like reading the American Constitution without understanding the American Revolution in the larger political context. You just can't. What you're make saying as is much sense. true also for the gospel like that. That is that is a really good point to make, because you can read the New Testament as if it were a Jewish writing, <laughs> which it is, that is telling Jewish people not to revolt against Rome and take up arms. You can interpret the entire thing with that sort of lens. Like Jesus says, you know, flee for the hills, do this. Don't join these people who are trying to bring about the kingdom of God through armed revolt because the kingdom of God cannot be brought by violence or human uh, movement like that. Anyway, that's a great yeah. point that needs to be well, made. Well, and- and it, so the end of that story was my friend who was a, a pastor at the time um, actually got fired from their church because um, because they had been reading these commentaries and they were they were like like publicly shamed for for preaching anything other than what the church focused on as their la- their last days theology. So I mean this stuff gets really personal and really real for some of us um and it's really painful for some of us because that was like an extraordinarily awful thing for my friend to go through um to be fired over that and he's like I was just reading the church commentaries. So um you know it's it's really tough. It's 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 tough to me that people take 
these prophecies so personally when no one can prove for sure, you know, but, but those of us who study the Bible, like we actually have a pretty dang secure understanding that this stuff is historically contextual. So anyway. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I went to a college that would not do missionary work or um, social work with groups that didn't share the same sort of end times theology that they had. I mean, like it literally divides Christians and churches and people when it hasn't in their view, it hasn't happened. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no way of knowing for sure exactly what the future will look like. Actually, that's kind of what the Bible's message is, is that if you feel like you can have guaranteed outcomes, like you're playing in a realm that is beyond your control. Um, that's really interesting. So how does it affect your, affect your worldview? If you think the rapture is coming or the end of days or it's coming, like, you know, all these words that people throw around pre-trib, post-trib, like oh my gosh. that is coming to the future. Like, let's talk for a minute about how many different aspects of life that in- impacts. Like, how would how do you should see the world? Should we define what those things are that you just threw out there? Or should we just sure. talk about? Sure. <laughs> we can okay. define it. Yeah. So uh, without jumping into all the historical context, there was, um, there's been, there's a, a place in the Bible where someone talks about um, a 1,000 year reign. This is in Revelation a 1000 year reign of Jesus where Satan and evil is bound and good proliferates until the end when there is this final battle. And so for some people, they interpret that literally and they believe that there is going to be a millennium, a 1000 year sort of reign for some people. They are post millennialists. They believe that's post millennialist means um, like after the millennium. So the end of all things comes after, you know, Jesus comes after the millennium. He returns to earth. So for 1000 years, the church will be doing its job so well and justice will prevail on the earth that there's going to be a sort of utopia. And at the end of that utopia, that thousand years, Jesus will come back and be physically present again with the earth. That's post millennialism. And that's, that was a pretty um, standard way of of interpreting things for some people in the early church, but really the idea of like a literal millennium fell out of Christian favor ever since the Romans took over. Because um, when you think of a millennium, you think of like, you know, God setting something up and um, anyway, so post-millennialism is a utopia. Premillennialism is the world's going to get worse. And for some premillennialists, not all of them, they believe that they will be raptured, that Christians will be taken off the earth, and that the world's going to get really, really bad before Jesus comes back. And then once Jesus comes back, that's when the thousand years that's mentioned in Revelation begins. So there are these people called millennialists, and mainline Christianity doesn't, and Catholicism doesn't really deal with millennialism. They don't look at the 1,000 years as like a literal thing that's going to happen. It's like obviously apocalyptic. Amillennialism is kind of what I'm describing. Amillennialism is no millennial. Like for a lot of Christians and a lot of scholars, they would think, yeah, they they would they would not interpret that to be like a prophecy that there's going to be a 1,000 years of this or that. Amillennialism is like um, that there is no mo- millennialism, that the world's going to get worse or better depends upon where you look from and um, – they they might believe that Jesus is coming back, but there's no like season before that or after that, if that makes sense. 
Um, anyway, so m- millennialism for Christians. Was- oh, I said pre-trib and post-trib. Sorry, we got to define that. Okay, too. okay. So millennialism is also like kind of a, a, a secular thing. Like there are people, like in the uh, when the new world was discovered and founded, like America, <laughs> you had a lot of people who were millennialists that were sort of Christians, but their millennialism wasn't necessarily tied to Christianity. They saw the new world as this ability to create a utopia. And ever since the, like the enlightenment, people thought that this world, we could make it so good. Utopia was going to be a reality. And so millennialism spread to all sorts of philosophies and religions and people. And so Christianity had its own brand, but it is grounded in the men, in the stuff that is in the Bible that people have interpreted to be a reality. But for a lot of Christian history from about 430 AD, which is Augustine, till about the 12th century, the 1100s, millennialism wasn't even an issue at all. But once a monk started bringing it back up, named Joachim Fiore, it, it became something that was bigger and, and, and a larger scale. And then eventually with like the last 200 years from right now, millennialism got really popular. But um, in, in pre-millennialism, that's the world's going to get worse. And then Jesus will come back. There are two camps. One believes, well, not all people who are premillennial believe in a rapture, but those who do believe in a rapture believe that a rapture of Christians where God takes away Christians from the earth happens before the world gets really bad. They're called pre-tribulation. And then post-tribulation is they are taken out of the earth after it gets really bad. So from like a mountaintop view, the like majority of Christian history would say millennialism is a side issue. It has never been a central part of Christian theology and, and like history, but there have been massive movements of people who have seen millennialism as a way of interpreting the Bible. And especially recently it's gotten very specific and camps have been split between people who disagree about when and how the millennium will happen. Woo. <laughs> That's way too, <laughs> probably way too much. Um, well, it's helpful information. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, especially if you didn't grow up with this stuff, um, it can sound really um, far removed from anything we know, you know, like, and it's hard because like you see people, you know, in, in political parties, you know, maybe on the news or whatever, the quote unquote news <laughs> talking about these kinds of beliefs and like have like this kind of urgency to the way they talk, but it's not urgency that's based on like scientific climate information or urgency based on like political expediency, but it's urgency based on like religious beliefs. So, um, well, the, you know. the problem with that is that at least in my experience is that most of this stuff, when it's, it's not taught, it's preached. So it's not like, here's what we believe here. Why? I mean, there's, there's elements of that, but it's mostly a call for, you know, you need to change because it could be tomorrow. And it's, it's, it's an emotional plea. And then it's represented a lot of times through uh, film, which was a big pushing forward of this idea mm-hmm. uh, in the late 60s as you had your kind of your first like rapture into the world kind of film. And then in the 70s especially was kind of its heyday. And then it re, you know, came back in the 90s with Left Behind. But the the pop culture elements of all this idea of rapture and end of the world because it's 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 kind of sexy, you know. I mean, you can you can make a movie with explosions and all this kind of stuff, and it has a real meaning and real purpose to it. So it's especially, I think, I think maybe part of the rise, and this is pure speculation, but part of the rise of this idea, especially within American Christianity, which I think is probably more prevalent than any other way. We probably you know we may not have invented it, but we certainly perfected it. 
but it's the Schofield Bible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a sec. Yeah, it's it's the, those images. I mean, that's how we kind of approach things, and we've kind of been, you know, in our 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 history as America, we haven't had a lot of like times of peace. So there's always like a new threat. It's part of our rhetoric. It's part of how we are patriotic is, you know, if, if something's not trying to attack us, then we're not doing our job and, you know, yay America, yay Christian, yay Jesus. Yeah. Our founding was ushering in the new world. Like that, that that's not just because we discovered the new world. We actually thought we were ushering the new world of like the millennial, like of millennialism. That's how we started. That's our religious and historical roots. Um, with the Puritans and all that? Yeah, with Puritans. If you look at the, if, hmm. if you look at their writings, they're very stark and very religious about how they are going to construct. Some of them are post-millennialist, some pre or whatever, but they, their idea of the new world was one that was attached to es- this eschatology, the last things um, for their, their belief. You mentioned, you mentioned Darby. Um, people might not know this, but the rapture, millennialism has some roots all the way back in Christianity. Some early Christian theologians, a few of them, were millenarians like Justin Martyr and Tertullian and stuff. So you can find people who have believed that pretty far back. But the rapture goes all the way back to the late 1800s only. <laughs> you don't really have people talking about a rapture before that. Um, a guy named Darby talked about a secret rapture happening, and he interpreted First Thessalonians 4, ch- chapter 4, verse 7, the only place in the Bible that he used to talk about the rapture. And he believed that human beings would be caught up in the air with that. This is the language that's used caught up in the air with Christ. Some people see that as like a metaphorical reference to power, right? Air is power. It's very symbolic. And how, when Jesus sets up the kingdom, um, the, the people who follow Jesus will share in the authority of, you know, ordering the world. But for him, there was going to be a secret rapture happening. And he started teaching this in the 1800s. And that, that got picked up by a popular version of the Bible that was spread around in America called the Schofield Bible. And that's kind of like the origin point for American rapturism. And it began there. But people don't realize it doesn't go back before that. No, no, Alan. That can't, that can't be true. That, that's <laughs> that's a that. central doctrine of Christianity. You can't tell uh, me that it's it's younger than our own country. It It is as old as time that God was going to rapture us during our heyday. Otherwise, <laughs> well, otherwise what, feels- are we, what are we doing here? <laughs> Schofield's kind of infamous, though, because I think he was kicked out of like biblical studies circles in Europe. And that's why he came here to publish his commentary Bible, because he his ideas were really rejected as being like really not very good interpretation of the Bible. Is yeah, that right? it, it, well, it, it was it's sure. not attractive to um, the the spirit of the day in Europe. It wasn't like emotionalism wasn't. Um, seen as a positive thing in a lot of like schools and schools of, of theology. This is like central enlightenment mm-hmm. times. So basically he took his ball and went to America. <laughs> in, in America, emotionalism like became the height of fashion during like the first great awakening, awakening and the second re- revivalism and like big tent meetings and stuff. So you can imagine that people who were getting excited about God again, which you know, spoiler alert, Alan thinks is an amazing thing. <laughs> uh, they got excited about a theology that would say, like, you think this is exciting? Like, just wait. Any day now, there's going to be these events that confirm to the whole world that God exists and that Jesus is king. And it's going to, like, break into our world and it's going to be amazing and awesome. 
Jeff mentioned that uh, the, that this theology is kind of sexy, right? And it sells. And I think that's the driving force of why people bought into the rapture and, and buy into this stuff is that the alternative is that life's going to go on as it has in the past. And that's like, for some people, the worst vision of the future is that you're still going to have to go to your job tomorrow, right? You're still going to have to like bathe your children and like clean up messes on the ground and do things that like for you are not spiritual activities. And so like, hopefully there's a world coming soon where everything's going to be important. You know, Jesus, we can see him in the flesh again and all of the world will be transformed. And so there's, there's all these undertones of how like the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. And, and those play into why people are quick to buy into this, especially in, um, in America in the 1800s and 1900s. So why do we want to escape? Like, that's a big question I have. Why do we want a theology? I mean, some people would say like, well, you know, it's just the word of God. We, we're not choosing it. But if that theology is pretty new, if you really look into it, and, and well, it's not a conspiracy it the theory. That- the, the, the idea of escaping is in the Bible and not necessarily escaping, more like seeing justice done. I think that's, that's the biggest thrust of apocalyptic and of the stuff that you see in the Bible is that there are people who are persecuted and they see real evil on a massive scale. They desired to have justice. And that starts all the way back in the Hebrew Bible. It gets more cosmic as you get later on in the prophets. And then in the new, in, in the new Testament with Jesus, he preached justice. So there's like this desire for that, but fast forward to where we are now, like that there's a really big materialistic bent to that. Like, it's not just, it's not that we're a persecuted minority that wants to have, you know, freedom. Maybe some of the early Americans were like that, but for us, it's, it's very different. I think for us now than it was when it was in the written in the Bible, the idea of escaping is different. Yeah. My whole concept of revelation, the book of revelation and other apocalyptic um, writings in the Bible that completely changed when I, when I read it as, um, an exploration of justice and righteousness in the public arena. Like as we relate to each other in society, a cry for justice and righteousness and asking what does it look like? And if you see the arc of revelation, it goes from decrying righteousness, uh, decrying injustice and unrighteousness in the churches, decrying injustice and unrighteousness in the political sphere, and then having a new vision of relating to each other, a new vision of heaven and earth and societies being together and whole in God. Like that that's the arc of it. It's basically three parts. So um, it, it really, if you look at it that way and stop trying to find all these like, like uh, boogeymen of, um, you know, what's actually predicting the real actual events of the future and more what does justice look like it completely changes the reading for for me i still hold on to like a concrete hope for the future like my um my hope for the world is founded on god's faithfulness to the world and i don't believe that we are on our own for the rest of eternity i do believe that god cares about the world and i think that that's a central message to the bible but you you can have that without having to set an end date or say that and I, I heard this before in my college that I went to someone said that the pope might be the antichrist from the pulpit they were like that's a know. common belief <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a common a belief. lot of people, people believe see that this stuff uh-huh. and uh it's you don't have to resort to that kind of stuff to b- believe in hope for the future and believe that god 
there is a future in God and that justice is something that will become normal and a part of, of, of human and Christian experience. Um, well, that's that, that's that fine line of wanting justice and wanting to be right. You know what I mean? Like vindicated. Yeah, you're right. For everyone to recognize that you were right when you said those exactly. things you said. And I yeah. think that it's it's I think the line is how much do you have? Like if if I don't if I'm not under the threat of persecution, then I I can maybe sometimes invent persecutions against me. I don't know who would do such a thing or how that would play out in society as a whole. I'm being sarcastic when I say that, by the way. <laughs> But, you know, if I have, then, and I'm, I'm looking for this end times, then I, oh, well, it's a justification. We're going to be right. The whole world is going to know. You know, it's almost always quoted with Philippians, you know, every knee shall bow and everyone, all that kind of stuff. But if I'm truly oppressed, I just don't want to die tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't want to, to be under the rule. I just want to be able to, you know, like all those, those quote unquote mundane things that you listed earlier, Alan, like, you know, going to my job, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's glorious. To even yeah. think that I could go to my job or do something so small and not have the threat or the worry of some kind of oppression or some kind of injustice done to me or my family. And I think it really says a lot about your place in the world, which side of that line you move toward, you know, vindication or justice. Yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm. I do want to add one thing out of so my, my family. I come from the background of I had the left behind Bible. I read all the left behind books. I was very pre-trib uh even you know more specific we were dispensational and all this stuff so i i that that was how i grew up and that's what i really expected for the world um and i I think my one observation being there the reason a lot of people got excited about reading world events as if they were fulfillment to prophecies in the new testament was that uh science had edged out a lot of their beliefs. Science had called into question their beliefs in a literal Genesis. Science had called uh, into question beliefs about like why things happen and why the way the world is structured as it is. And is everything, you know, fatalistic? It's just going to go according to physical processes. And then the world's going to end someday. Like science had taken away from my community, a lot of things. And we were in the midst of, of, of battling that all the time going to school. That's what we thought about. So, if you could see some sort of evidence in the physical world for the things you believed, it bolstered your faith. So for a lot of people, when they read Revelation like that, it was like, wow, this stuff is true. Like everything I had thought about was true. My belief in God is true, even though all these people say it's not. And that actually, there's a feedback loop into that, is that I believe the whole world's going to tell me it's not true. I believe the world's going to get worse and that people are not going to believe in God anymore and they're going to love themselves and not God. That's in the Bible. And so when they persecute me and when they all say I'm just crazy, like that's a part of my belief set. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, our relationship with scholarship in the outside world. But there's a really good aspect to that is that for some people, like it's just building their faith in God and it gets them excited about God again. And uh, and I just wish that that impulse could drive other things. <laughs> and you don't, you wouldn't have to resort to that to see God in the world and see God um, in our society. So, so if you don't hold to this kind of future kind of hope, this future like happenings. Uh, yeah, I guess that's my question. Like how does, sure. how does hope work? 
How like can you do you have an eschatology if you don't believe the rapture is happening? Absolutely. Um Absolutely. Do you, how do you find meaning in the world? Because I do know people who have kind of debunked this future rapturous thing for themselves or have decided that they don't believe it. And they they their whole faith structure crumbles because it had been so central to what they were taught that faith yeah. is. And um that's fine. Um I don't want to put any judgment on anybody's journey if that's where you're convictions have led you but it also makes me a little bit sad when i see people really wrestling with losing hope and losing meaning and this this particular thing tends to be really central i think for a lot of my friends who come out of evangelical circles and it was hard for it was hard for me i would like them to know that christianity has its arms wide open and that their experience of christianity and theology is a very specific and thin slice of the the larger pie like Eastern Christianity itself has like never been interested in any of this. And a lot of Western Christianity has not either. And like their, their um, disillusionment with that is actually a good thing. Like that's not the center of, of the Christian message. Uh, and also I, I, I do want to point to, um, I don't know if I'm hijacking this or not, but you talked about like, do you, do you still have hope? Let's say you give up rap, the rapture and the millennium. What does the future look like? There are some good theologians out there. John Polkinghorne is, is one of my favorite. He wrote The God of Hope and The End of the World. He was a physicist, become priest, and he believes that you know in five billion years, the sun's going to explode. That's what scientists believe on our planet. And that eventually, there's either going to be a big crunch for our universe. The whole universe is going to, like the Big Bang will reverse, and it'll all crunch back in together into an infinitesimal small dot. Or it will just keep expanding. And this is the really sad like vision of the future, the universe will just keep expanding forever and matter. will just get further and further. All stars will get further away from each other. Planets will get further away from each other. You know, they'll eventually die a heat death. All of matter will just dissipate in energy. And eventually things will be so far apart and not connected that basically it's non-existent anymore. And so for me, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in eschatology, that God's going to do anything at the end of time, like, you're facing a really weird future anyway. Like it's it's as weird as the well, rapture. Five billion years. Well, oh, well, hold on. That's it is as weird as like the like rapture theology or some of the things that that we might believe. That is just as weird as thinking that all of matter will just continually separate forever in this like giant heat death. Like that's that's stuff that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. So whoever you are, your vision of the future is like really far out. It's weird and it's like hard to deal with. So I I think that in any case, whether it's the big crunch or the big expansion forever and forever, my Christian theology and John Polkinghorne's as well centers on the love and faithfulness of God that we do not trust ultimately in physical processes or even societies or anything like that to bring about the justice and the life that God will. And he, he actually says something kind of cool. He says the beginning of, of our universe has, is full of divine patience. Like you, you look at cosmic evolution it's happening over billions of years. You look at evolution of life on our planet. If God was there for all of that, right? If God witnessed that or was a part of it, that takes a lot of patience. I mean, like I can't even, you know, wait for water to boil when I'm cooking pasta, but God waits for the whole universe to develop to where we get right now, why would God not be patient in the future? Say it is like the big expansion forever and ever into nothingness. God has that patience 
we've already already been demonstrated if you look at the past perhaps god will wait till everything does dissipate in a heat death before god resurrects the universe and creates something <laughs> i don't i don't think it's about god honestly it's not we 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 can attach god to it and we can attack, attach spiritual and god rhetoric to it but it's not about god it's about how someone feels secure about their future like it's that's what it's it about. is about like, God for me. What are you talking about? It, like, wait, I, no, it's, it I is can tie about those, God. but no, I think I can tie what you guys, are, what you're both saying together. Because Jeff, like, yeah, I agree with you to an extent. Like, it is, it's more about the the material world and like how the world is is set up. But God did choose to make a finite world that has an end, and God chose to make us who are finite, who have end. And and death is part of the reality that we know. We can't really know anything else. I mean, unless like you imagine and like write books like about immortal vampires. So we have to, we, we all wrestle with finitude. And I think that's when, it, if it comes down to hope, a lot of, a lot of the, um, the loss of meaning and hope I think for, comes from like wrestling just with the, the mortality of life like the, the see i don't know i think i i agree i agree with all that but i don't think it has anything to do with god like i understand uh, to me it's it's more of like am i gonna live forever not am, the rhetoric when i was growing up was always like heaven's gonna be you get to hang out with god forever and he you're gonna your love relationship with god is gonna be this or whatever and that was always true. super boring to me <laughs> like it, <laughs> i was just like well that doesn't sound like very much fun you know it's great that i can live forever but you know what if god is awkward what if you know <laughs> you know it, it's it, it's not i know it's about god because obviously god is god but i, I don't think that 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 these theologies and these ideas of the end come because we're super at least today it may have been true in other times but i don't think it's because we're super worried about what god is going to do it's we're super worried about how we are going to be affected and i think that sometimes we extend our reach like if we're talking about everything falling apart four billion years from now or whether an unknown rapture that could happen tomorrow they're still equally distant like we're extending our reach when it comes to what we think about the future instead of just saying i don't know when the world's going to end let me just do what i can to build a foundation for a future that i may never experience but I can experience the benefits of that thing here and now. Man, I, I those two th- those things can't be separated for me though. Like God and the universe and me are like what I know and and, and what I think about. Like I I think that hope hope for like the world is connected to hope for me. We should probably put a link to the um we're talking about eschatology, right? The end of all things. We had a previous episode where we talked about personal eschatology like personal are you going to heaven and does hell exist um we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to that but like that this question about the universe does is is super important because it does say something about god right i mean the the future of all things like is god a loving god if there is no future life or if there is no justice if somebody can live their whole life and never see justice it says what we think about god well, I was just going to say that it's not either you have a rapturous vision of the future or you have no future vision. Those yeah. are not the only two options. And I'm thinking of a couple of um, 20th century theologians who've talked about becoming and that God is the power to be or the power to become. Um, I'm thinking of Tillich, Moltmann, and Bonhoeffer have all kind of talked about this kind of similar theme. Like if we if we get away from the the literal literalist, what you would call literalist reading of scripture and literalist eschatology, what is what happens to hope? And the same same a very similar question happens if you get away from a literalist understanding of 
uh, resurrection. Moltmann talks about those a lot. Um, and Moltmann says like, God creates hope against hope that where all hopes have, have died, there comes a wave of the future, like a spirit of re- resurrection into dead bones. And he references Ezekiel 37. This is from um, his writing, Religion, Revolution, and the Future. So he talks about how God, God's creative acts like bring us into new realities in every single moment. And that's the hope of having creation like break in to the future through God's very existence, God's very being. Like the fact that we have a creator God means that there are always new possibilities for the future just by nature of God's createdness and creativeness. So that's, that is like, instead of just looking at like events of the future or not events of the future, like looking at, and I think this is kind of what you both are saying in different ways, maybe looking at the nature of God, God's self and, and who God is, a, a God that creates and a God that loves life means that we have hope that can't be taken away from us no matter what our reading of scripture is. If you believe that about God, but what you believe about God is just a reflection of who you are. Take away all the rhetoric. Let's say everyone has a theory on how the world's going to end. Christians, they talk about rapture or amillennialism or postmillennialism or whatever. But if you break it down or or someone who's a secularist to an atheist, they, you know, well, AI is going to take us over. No, no, no. Nuclear war is going to kill us. Or no, no, we're going to build a utopia. You boil down everyone's thing. It's basically a reflection of whether they think things are going to get better, like we talked about last week, or whether they're going to get worse. Like it kind of, you can boil it down to those two sides. Or in the middle, it's just going to stay the same and everything's but, going but to whether move you on to status quo. boil it down or not, there is reality out there outside of us. Yeah, human beings are the measure of all things. Like that's the traditional we, we measure our world by how tall we are or whatever, but there there still is a world outside of us and we're like tapping into that and thinking like what what happens like and, and there is a God outside of us like it's kind of like a priori it for me it, it goes beyond just how my personality is structured to like looking at the universe scientifically and looking at my religious view theologically like reading the bible as a source as like the source right for where i get my theology bringing those things together is not just a measure of who i am like there there has been billions of years of cosmic evolution whether i feel like there has been or not you know what i mean like and so i'm i'm grappling with realities that are outside of myself and i think that that's the only honest way to do theology that's why i don't believe certain things and certain theologies when I hear them is that I am struggling with the physical world and human science and the Bible and integrating these things together. So yeah, there is an element to like, maybe I'm more prone to buy into one theology than the other. Like I I agree with you, Jeff, that that I'm more prone to do that, but that's not the end all of my theological process. Like I, I think there's a bigger reality out there that, that we're talking about. And I'm sure you agree with that to some extent. Uh, to some extent, yeah. Well, yeah, we're like little dots, you know, we're like little <laughs> tiny blips on. We're, we're like one pixel on the screen, each of us, you know. If you like, really, if you really, unless think about unless it. Jesus comes back tomorrow, then we're like the generation that Jesus chose to but come. But you're still rapture. pixel. Like to me, that's the beauty of it. Is like, is that you are on one level completely insignificant, but on another level, the very fact that you're even there means you're significant. You know what I mean? Like it's. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's both at the same time. It's a paradox. Exactly. Absolutely. 
What are your your takeaways from this before we close out the conversation? My takeaways don't set set an end date. Okay, <laughs> Will, William Miller was one of the first ones to do it from the Bible in 1843. He set an end date. Charles Taze Russell set an end date for 1914, and the Russellites became Jehovah Witness. Jim Jones in Waco, Texas, in the 70s, set end dates. Harold Camping uh, from Family Radio just set an end date for 2011, and then revised it to 2012. People sold their houses and said Jesus was coming back, and like, and and you know, put up billboards and stuff like that. I think all. Of that, and I think a lot of Christians who are premillennial would agree with me. Don't send an end date. Don't be speculative. Don't do that. Take that impulse to not be speculative and blow it up to something bigger. Don't look at your premillennialism or your postmillennialism or your pre-trib or post-trib or whatever. Don't look at that as something that is set because you are still speculating on prophecy about something about the future. That like we don't have access to say anything for sure. And don't let that ruin your relationships. Don't let your faith be destroyed when you no longer believe that <laughs> the UN is evil or the Euro is evil or peace in the Middle East is bad. Like, don't set your faith on that because the Bible tells you not to. Jesus tells you not to. The the content of our hope is God, not these theologies that we build. That's my takeaway. My takeaway is uh, I've been thinking through this whole conversation about how people are treating Muslims today. And th- this seems like a tangent to our conversation, but I think it's really, really central because the same people who are spewing violent rhetoric against Muslims and causing witch hunts and misunderstanding them a lot of times intentionally are the same people who hold these rapturous theologies often. Not always, but there's a strong correlation between the religious right and this kind of stuff. And I, I think that we need to look back at our own history and remember, you know, collectively, culturally, or religiously what it was like to be persecuted and never treat someone else like that. And so I think for me, in a larger picture, to really look at the ripple effects of these theologies and what their fruits are. You know, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. So what are the fruits of thinking that the rapture might come tomorrow? What is it actually doing? What kind of urgency is it creating? What is it compelling you toward? Um, And is that really within the will of God for you? Mm. Maybe is a way to look at it. And I would say that assume the world's going to last forever and do things to help make that happen. So that'll do it for us in this conversation. Uh, if you have anything to add, you can do that at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 45, or you can give us feedback on the show in general anytime at irenacast.com slash feedback. So on the other side of the music, we are going to be playing Sort of Scategories. So we did this game back in episode 16, our episode on beauty. And basically how this is going to work is each of us have come up with a category and a letter. And the other two hosts will go back and forth until someone can't think of something. I said it last time, but I got to say it again. I don't rage at any game like I do categories. <laughs> it's hard for me. So I get angry. You're going to be a little competitive? Is that what you're Yeah. I feel like I'm a, I'm a decent you know, loving, compassionate person, but sitting around the table with Jeff and family members and playing categories, it, it got ugly for me sometimes on the inside of my heart. And if you, if you've listened to our other episode, we do read from the exact same script before we start this game. So we, <laughs> that's exactly what you said last time. That's right, really, <laughs> yeah, it, <is. laughs> it really is. I like have almost, to give that that almost that. word for word the exact conversation that happened. Alan, after the game. 
We'll have confessional time, and you can okay. talk about the the ugliness of your heart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so how this is going to work is we each have a category, we each have a letter, and then they'll go back and forth. So an example would be, you know, book titles that start with A, and then Alan would say a book, and Mona would say a book, and they'd go back and forth until one of them can't think of one. All right, so who wants to go first? Me. Okay. <laughs> Okay, countries that start with the letter N as in Nancy. Um, countries that start with an N? Yeah. Okay. Um, n- Norway. That's a country, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. New Zealand. Um, Namib- Namibia? Is that how you pronounce it? Nambia? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Nambia was going to be one of mine. Dang okay. it. Uh, no. So we said Norway, Nambia, and what did I say? You said New Norway. You you said I was gonna. I was about to say New Zealand. Did I already say? New yeah, Zealand? you said New Zealand. Netherlands. Um, jeez, that was gonna be my next one. Oh, uh, Nicaragua, delicious coffee. Um, I would say North America, but I know that's a continent, and I can't get away with things like that. No. Um, we'll get you. Shoot. We should have like a timer for the end of this. Nepal. Yeah. Oh, that was home, be my next home one. to one of the biggest or the biggest mountain in the world, right? Uh gosh darn it. That sucks that you took mine. Um N- Nigeria. Nigeria. Um Are you gonna cut out all the silence of Alan thinking? Why don't I refer to myself in the third person? Is that inappropriate? I don't know. That's weird. Why did you do that? Is it weird? You're not the rock, man. You can't do it. I don't do it all the time. There's a Seinfeld episode about someone referring to themselves in the third person. Anyway, I'll try not to do that. You're just buying yourself time. I am. I was going to say, okay, I I think I lost. Nantucket's not one. (laughs) (laughs) It's the start of a dirty limerick. A dirty limerick? Anyone say Norway? Yeah. Yes. Jeff said yeah. Norway. Yeah, you I said, said Norway. Norway. Mm-hmm. Oh, dang. I win. All right. Jeff wins. Dang it. Okay. Cool. All right. Alan, you want to go or should I go? I'll go. Um, a board game or family game that starts with T. You go first, Mona. You get the first one. Um, Truth or dare. <laughs> I'll accept that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never played that with my family. <laughs> ah, that's funny. Board that's a board game is in B O R E D when you're bored. Yeah. Pretty no. true. Funny. <laughs> All right, Jeff. There's other reasons to play that game. Anyway, um Is there Jeff? <laughs> oh, if you're Alan, an this is a this is a sadistic category. Yeah, it really is. Okay, um Tough, huh? Oh Tiddlywinks. <laughs> What? It's a game, yeah, right? A game. You just wanted it to, you just wanted to say that. Tiddly you just wanted winks. to say that out loud. <laughs> Tiddlywinks. It did. Okay. Tiddlywinks. Trouble is my it. next one. Trouble. Ooh, ah. that's a good one. Ooh. Um. Uh, crap. I'm sure there's a million, and I'm going to kick myself. Um. Therapy. Yeah, that's a great one. I love that that's, one. That's one of our family's favorite games. You just saw it on the shelf, huh? Yeah. No. <laughs> 
I did it. Um, That's but, a great. I always want to play that game whenever I come over, and everyone's like, "Oh, yeah, it's man. a real game." If you're it's listening so and you're fun. like, "That's not real," uh, no, it really is. It's a ther- It's really interesting way to get to know people. Yes, I love it. Do you have one, Mona? Well, I have some clever ones. We could go with tidy time, tickle time, triage. You know, like if multiple siblings at once get hurt and you have to decide who's got the worst injury. No, That's a good game. I don't Those are all good games. Come on. I don't accept clever. them. I'm the Come arbiter. I they can't be personal family games. You could, I could just <laughs> make up. A, well, we play the tea game where all of us come up with a letter. <laughs> you guys that didn't play tidy tea time? time. Actually, tea time might have been good. Everybody no. plays tidy time. Like, is come that on, where you kids, clean up the time house? Time to tidy up. Yeah. No. All right, I'll no, give no, you. I'll no, give no, you tidy no. time. No. And yeah. I'll do tea party. I do a lot of tea parties with uh, with my twins. A lot. I will accept both of them because I accept neither of them. That's fine. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Now it's Mona's turn again. Wait. What'd you say, Jeff? Tea party. I'm a oh. master at tea parties at this point. No, that I would say that's more like make believe than a game. I think tidy time is make believe too. Things are not dirty no. intrinsically; no, they're no, only no. dirty because we to say get they kids are. To clean up, you have to turn it into a game. <laughs> that does not work. Teddy bears, same. <laughs> Mona lost. <laughs> All right, I'm calling it. Jeff won again. <laughs> I am undefeated. You know, I only thought of one. I only thought of one before I came up with that category. I could only think of one. What? And that was Twister. Oh, Twister. Oh, wow. I can't believe it. Yeah. That's, Dang it. That's probably the most obvious ones. I bet you people are listening and they're yelling they're like, Twister. God, Twister, Twister. iPhone or car. Great, great movie, too. Amazing late 1990s movie. <laughs> one of my wife's favorites. It's so Twister? good. Twister? Yeah. That's so funny. I can't stand Bill Paxton. He bugs me so bad. I like him. I like that whole movie. It makes me feel good inside. Really? People's houses so get weird, destroyed. Though. Relationships <laughs> come weird, together. dude. You're such a weird man. Okay. Yeah, so weird. All right, Jeff, what's yours? All right, so my category is toiletries, grooming products. I would accept. What's the letter? Start with an O. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to get destroyed. Wait, personal glooming? Grooming? (laughs) Glooming. (laughs) (laughs) Personal grooming, not social grooming. So, like, I can't say OxyClean. But no. I can say oxy pads for your face. Ooh, for you yes, go. you can. So there's your first one. And, and, and I can say uh, there's a toothpaste called Oral B. Mm-hmm. You know that one? Yeah. Like, yeah. So I can say that. And that's probably uh, the last one I'll know. It's a toothbrush and a toothpaste. But Whatever. I'll, I'll take it. Thank you. The letter O? What is, wait, you guys picked terrible letters. <laughs> God. That um, one's tough. I'm thinking of like opal soap. That's a soap, right? Opal? Pretty opal. sure. Yeah, opal soap. Opal. Jeff, look it up. I don't know. Yeah, Jeff, look it up. All right, let me look it up. Is that a thing? Uh, opal soap. I think that's like tidy time. I don't think that, I think that's something you just completely made up. <laughs> I will win this game. Oh. There's opal soap rock that's oh bathing soap. Oh, my gosh. Soap. Yeah, no, it's there. Opal, opal soap. Opal Fine. soap rock. Orange peels for your face when you're... Um, Doing a facial. That's not a for thing. your eyes. Yeah, it is. No, I'm pretty sure feels... if I looked it up. No, if you're a hippie vegan, it works. <laughs> I'm, I'm so. A... <laughs> hey, listen, I'm gonna put anything with the letter O on my face. Uh, that's funny. I'll I'll take it. I'll Seriously? take peels. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you. You guys are just ganging up on me at this point. Uh... Come on, come on now. You win too many games. That's why. I don't. I never. Win yeah, games. You yeah, you do. Yeah, do not. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is like optics, like contact lenses. <laughs> 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 All 
All right, Alan, All right. you, what you about are the winner. An o- Ovaltine bath. Is that a thing? Where you like no, pour Ovaltine in a bath? No, if gross. You're obese, it Ew. Is. Or you like crushed <laughs> like up a... Oxycontin. You could like rub it Oxycont- in your skin. I'm sure some people have those as part of their personal <laughs> beauty regimen. Uh, you, know, you know why somewhere. I picked that category and that letter? Is because it represents my crowning achievement in the actual categories game. Is it was toiletries, O, and I, and you know how like you do double letters, you get double points. Yeah. And I picked oil of Olay. Oh, That's three man. O's. And I got my like crowning achievement in that. Oil of so Olay. that's why I picked it. So wait, you chose that because you wanted to win even when you weren't playing? Exactly. Wow. <laughs> so amazing. I'm truly undefeated in this game. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Anyway, I think that'll, <laughs> that'll do it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would um, like to help support the show, you can do that by going to iTunes and Stitcher to rate, review, and subscribe. You can tell a friend. You can go to our uh, website and click on the links and all that good stuff. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. I think that's definitely the sign that that is it for this week. It's so for this week, sign of the time, sign of the time, the end time. <laughs> oh man! Hopefully the rapture doesn't happen before this episode comes out. Hopefully the rapture doesn't happen before I get my driver's license. Someone used to say that. Oh, I always used to say, "Hopefully it doesn't happen before I get married." That's right. Sex. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly why that's what it's all about hey when you're <laughs> anyway um <laughs> all right so for this week i'm jeff i'm mona and i'm alan thanks for joining the conversation that ending was really awkward should we go back to it again <laughs> i like it Oh, should we press stop?